Hello, and welcome to the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luke Njani. And today we are joined by my very good friend, Ross Demubed. He is the VP of Software and Platforms at Veronex, a medtech development company. Ross, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So why don't you give the audience a, a bit of a flavor of who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm Ross Demubed. I'm VP of Software and Platforms at Veronex, formerly Fusion Biotech, where I was the CIO. And I'm a recovering engineer. All of my career, I've been involved in embedded software development, mostly in safety-critical industries. I did electrical engineering in school. After college, I started my career in automotive, mostly focused on electric drives. Spent a few years at General Motors and then moved on to a small electric vehicle company. And that's where I met Jeff. Mm -hmm. That was back in, what, 2009-ish. Finally landed at Fusion Biotech. Uh, Fusion Biotech, we were were size of about 45 people. Software team is about 16 right now. We are a contract solution provider for medtech and life science. We are a uh, tightly knit team of experienced engineers, industrial designers, product specialists. Uh, we deliver top-notch product solutions from mechanical, electrical, software, and design. We were recently acquired by Vernex, and that has expanded our offerings. So we're more of an end-to-end solution provider at this point. Vernex, I don't know the exact numbers, but we are about 200 plus people globally. So some more, we have a more global footprint now. Yeah. So, so basically the topic we wanted to talk about was one that is near and dear to my heart, certainly, which is agile in medical devices and, and staying agile while maintaining quality, which is basically the entire thesis of this podcast. So it's a great fit. So what are some of the, the main challenges that you've seen that, that product companies face when dealing with safety-critical medical devices, especially from, say, a quality and regulatory perspective? I would say there are probably two high-level ones. So from, from like a high-level perspective, defining the scope is usually, and finding exactly what the product will be and how successful it will be, what, what that's high-level scope will basically define your product. So having that definition early on is, I would say, the most challenging part. And I would say the second one is obviously, it's the obvious one, is the, is the technical challenges, right? So software is nothing but technical challenge on, on, on its bad days, right? Especially when we're like controlling multiple hardwares and you're trying to integrate a hardware into a different set of hardware using some off-the-shelf software and off-the-shelf hardware and trying to integrate it with the new hardware. It's usually um, challenging, right? Um, Maybe a third one here is, and it kind of goes with the first item is defining the scope is, I would say, the regulatory pathway. Like most of our clients that come to us, they have an idea of what the product is, but they don't know exactly from the regulatory perspective what the pathway is. Is it a de novo? Is it a 510K? Is it a, is it just a feasibility project that you don't need any document control? Like not knowing that stuff or defining that stuff early on, I think that was that would be the one of the things that I would say is currently the challenges that we face from project to project. So we're, okay, I'll, I'll stop you there. Luke and I, our eyes clicked at the same phrase. So when we're talking about, you know, really getting a lot of definition up front, that sounds kind of waterfally. Mm-hmm. So how much, and I know there's a balance here. I'm, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate with you. So, you know, how, how much definition is appropriate to have before you start any work and are there different phases like you t- you mentioned a feasibility phase which to me kind of screams prototyping and you know 
quality be damned. Just get, get something to kind of get in your hands and start seeing what it's like. So when someone walks in the door, do you really say, oh, we can't get started until we define the whole thing? No. So um, I think it's the high level scope it was what I kind of was referring to. So okay. how much definition do we need? We need to know what the product does like we need to know the high level no uh you can just start writing code with no definition at all yeah sometimes you do that (laughs) well you're laughing but as a freelancer that's how that's usually how i get hired people just say well i'm going to pay you hourly you know start typing curly brackets i'm going to tell you which ones once i figure that out yeah and i mean we are in kind of the same business i would say maybe at a larger scale so yeah we do get that quite often too, but it's really, I think the way Agile has helped us is that we don't have to have those definitions, you know, to the, defined to the dot of like what this product exactly needs, what are all the requirements early on in the first phase. We don't, we don't have to have that, right? What we do need to have is a roadmap and a set of features that we need to do for the maybe the next sprint and the sprint after but having the full vision and the whole roadmap is what we need to have definitions around early on and that's what i've meant you know having the full scope is all right is this thing going to be running in human in or you know being used on a human clinical study in three months or is it just going to be at a show to to raise your next um, seed run right so having those definitions uh, early on will help have, knowing exactly what the milestone is, what the you know what the scope of those milestones are. Yeah, I would I I, I kind of like to find those as project goals. Right. Mm-hmm. So so rather than specifying features to the nth degree, which is what it sounds like you're agreeing with me that you don't do, it's okay. What is the goal that we're trying to hit? And like you said, there is a huge difference between I want this, you know. On the on the floor of the Anaheim Convention Center at the you know whatever medtech show kind of moving and and drawing people into the booth or actually want to be using this on humans in a pilot study or in a clinical trial you know those are vastly different quality requirements going into those two things and so you know very different work work schedules so I would say you know just kind of emphasizing on the last piece which was the regulatory piece right it is important to know exactly what your end goal is, it's important. And what your pathways for, for your submission, FDA submission, whatever that might be, that's very important because that that help us plan better, right? And I would say you mentioned it's very waterfall having the definitions early on. It's all true, very true. But I would say the phase zero, which is planning, is not, right? Or, Phase one, which is planning, it's not, right? So phase zero is investigation, phase one is planning. I would say uh, planning phase is where you can't really be agile. You really want to limit that time to be like, okay, maybe we have a month to plan this whole thing out. We'll define our backlog of features, or you you call the project plan. Did you call it plan, Jeff? (laughs) I I, I can't Uh, remember what word I used, but... But yeah, so having those early definitions of the, the milestones and features, those are important for planning purposes. And documentation, specifically for FDA, for safety critical industry, is part of that, right? So, and I, I would say that's probably the only phase within the development life cycle that is not 
very agile. You got to sit down and grind it out for, you know, two weeks or four weeks and, and plan out the, the sprints and plan out your, you know, um, kind of how are you going to meet those milestones? So I guess, so, so usually when we're, uh, you know, when we're focused on agile, it's, it's later on as you're going through those development cycles and you learn new information, essentially how, how responsive can you be saying, Oh, like the customer really likes this or no, that didn't work. Like, and, and how, how essentially, how quickly and easily can you course correct and incorporate that? So how do you find that typically works in these projects? So from a company perspective, we are very agile. Like we both are, you know, from the agile came from software, right? But, you know, we, we're, we're applying it to other disciplines. And uh, how do we tackle that is we, we set that up in our SOWs in, in, in our work for early on for a project. We say, this is how we're going to do it. This is going to be, we're going to do, we're going to be on a, you know, sprint base and agile base. Our sprints are typically two weeks, but we've done projects where we vary that from like one week to anywhere from two, two four weeks to, you know, so it varies, but we, we set that up and we set the expectation with the client. We say, we're going to meet with you in the planning phase for this, for that sprint. And we're going to define what we're going to do in that two sprint. You'll see a demo of this in two weeks or four weeks or whatever that cycle is. And that's how we're going to course correct for the next sprint. So okay. we, we, we demonstrate what we've accomplished in those two weeks. They see it and they, you know, we course correct. If you know we're on the right path, they, you know, we, we continue. If, if there is our changes needed, we, we make those changes as needed. But okay. yeah. so, so it sounds like it's a pretty, pretty typical implementation of Scrum. Kind of, you, you have those two to four week sprints, and you actually do a demo with the client, and that's where you kind of officially show them what what the result is after that period, and incorporate their feedback, and and mm-hmm. then basically, you know, look at the backlog of features that you have and either reprioritize or add new ones or delete ones and say, okay, this is the, this is the batch of the work that we're going to prioritize for the next sprint. Fair enough. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. All right, Luca, what do you think? There's a couple of things that I'm curious about. Yeah. So the first one is as you're starting up development of a new, of a new project and of a new product, I should say, how long is it until you have something actually worth demoing? Because that's that's usually something that I get a lot of pushback on when I'm when I'm coaching or training teams. They say, you know, the first couple of sprints we need to like get our backend set up, and we need to like get, find the right color scheme for our IDE and and whatnot. <laughs> so I wonder, how quickly can you show something to your customers? So I, don't I be think... don't be afraid to toot your own horn. I know you guys are good at this. <laughs> Yeah, we are actually very good at fast prototyping. I think one of the one of our strengths is fast prototyping and, and being able to do that rapid development. To answer your question, short version of it, it really depends on the project and what we're working on. But we typically have in even the first two weeks of the project, we usually have something to demo. Because we have industrial designers and UX UI designers and some early on kind of human factor, usability type folks on, on team, in the, in the team, they usually, they usually have something early on to show off, show off, right? You know, it's, whether it's so something like, like a wireframe, I would imagine. 
wireframe or like a theme of the how this the software is going to look you know what color we're going to color scheme we're going to use and how the instrument is going to look where the display is going to be we usually give uh, the clients a couple of options they pick from you know whatever like maybe they combine a couple of features from different options so we usually have either hand sketches that we can show them or like a CAD drawing of an instrument enclosure with some of the dis- you know screens on the display so we usually we have something on the first couple of weeks. Now, from a software perspective, um, and I'm going to, this is where the part that I'm going to toot my own horn. Yeah, do it. We've developed these a series of libraries that we call Fusion Core. It's, it's a ready-to-go, off-the-shelf library that you could use to basically develop application software really fast. So we've done projects where, you know, we... We've done like the first demo of the software, one of the features in the software, for example, working in in, in that two-week sprint, in the first two weeks. So this is both from on the software and electronic side. So we have, electronic-wise, we have developed our own SOM uh, system and module that has processor and other peripherals that we typically use on projects, like SD RAMs and you know flash drives and ADC drivers, etc. Little, small SOM probably a two by two inch and that plugs into, you know, uh, carrier boards or evaluation boards that bring out all the pins and we could do breadboarding of the features, the new features for a product really fast. So our electric electrical team gets busy from day one building a breadboard for a new something on a new product. Like if, if you have a new valve on a, on a valve that you need to drive on a new project, they, they, really breadboard that really fast within a week or two weeks and by the end of that two weeks we have because we've already worked on maybe a similar valve before and it's in our library on the fusion core library we we are able to basically get that going in that two weeks and demonstrate to our client that hey we look we started off from zero and we have a valve actuating in two weeks right with the rest of the software um Establish. I think one other thing that we developed uh, that's kind of important is we. It's not. It doesn't even stop there. So that's just the you know scratching the surface of what this these libraries could enable you. We these libraries provide an abstraction layer that you could actually do uh, unit testing, off-target unit Yay! testing. Yay! <laughs> yeah, I know Jeff loves that. We could. You know, we could develop with, you know, test-driven development. You know, that's it enables us to do that. We could write, I would say, 90% of our code off-target. We don't even need to have a processor or, or electronics developed for the project, but we could have most of the application written because we could abstract things out. We could run it on our, on our PC or a Mac or Linux and just be able to unit test. So in addition to unit testing, do you typically have simulators running as well where someone can do run a simulated instrument on their desktop? Exactly. So that's another thing that the, these libraries enable to be able to like mock objects and, you know, things that we don't need, mock the hardware and just, you know, simulate and yeah, have a simulator running in in matter of a couple of days, really. Nice. We also have another feature that we've recently developed, and it's it's basically if you do have, for example, a system that's working. So, like we have, oftentimes we have clients that have their version one of an instrument developed, and they're going for version two. But maybe they've developed the firmware, not developed the software. There's maybe features being added in the software. So what we have, we have a recorder basically that records all the communication in a format that we our software understands. 
and it could replay it back. So it becomes kind of a live simulator. So we could put it in the in the loop, basically in the you know between the software and the firmware, for example, to record all the transactions and then replay it back. There is a bit of trickery in there where you know there's human involvement oftentimes, like do something, and there's like reactions to actual users you know, pressing a button or, you know, ejecting a tray and putting something in the tray, for example. But we all have, we've implemented ways to actually inject interactions like that as well and be able to, like, it's an event-driven event driven of a playback tool as well. So, nice. So you could use that for yeah. for host-based integration level and system level testing. Exactly. Not just unit exactly. testing. Awesome. Exactly. So, yeah, thank you very much for that answer. I've been kind of hoping that that was going to be what you were going to say because, you know, I received so much pushback. I say, no, you know, this works if you're doing like web stuff, but it can't really work for embedded systems or not for safety critical systems. And I'm like, no, like this has to be your goal. You may not, you know, you may not be close, be close to it yet, but there are people who can pull it off. Yeah. So. And, uh... And I mean, I think I was listening to one of your previous podcasts. I think there was a team doing the same thing on the electronic side. It's kind of the same idea, right? You have some pre-developed platform framework, whatever we want to call it, that enables you to go fast, enables you to de-risk the, the higher risk items for a project and not necessarily be bound to time constraints per se, right? You know, it's... It, yeah, and, and I'll, at the end of the day, all these tools are out there to basically enable you to to do this, to, to get where you want to go fast. And we've we've invested the time to do this. Um, I think where it kind of originated from was I personally worked on many many projects in the medtech world. Right, I saw the commonality. All of these things use an RTOS, an operating system. All of these things use a you know flash driver for to store your calibrations and you know alignments and whatever, right? All of these instruments, even in the automotive world, that it's very similar, right? They they all use some basic functionality. Why just reinvent the wheel every time? Why not, you know, uh, why not reuse something that has been proven, something that you know you're gonna need on every project? Uh, why not make those into a library that you could basically redo? And while you're doing that, why not? Make it in a way that is easily you uh, allow you to um, abstract thing, abstract things out and and be able to like unit test the rest of the system. Um, so and and it does help. So correct me if I'm wrong. From my from my understanding, you know, I've known you and and Bruce and Steve at Fusion Biotech for many many years, at least at Fusion, and I and I would assume at Veronex now that you've been acquired, you tend to work on a lot of diagnostic instruments. They tend to be kind of medium size wall powered with a touchscreen interface and a, you know, one or several hard real time kind of low level microcontroller driven controlling motors and pumps and valves and, and light sensors and things like that. So like the instruments you work on tend to be that in that form factor range, you're not working on huge MRI machines and you're not generally working on implantables. So like that, you at least you might have those projects and there you might have to pull in some custom things, but a lot of your instruments kind of fall into that similar scale and, and the commonality between those just shoots through the roof at that point where it makes sense to invest in. If you walk through our door with the type of instrument that we've done 50 of now, we're going to be really fast (laughs) because we've developed this, this set to, to solve the common problems of those things. 
Yeah, and I would I would add to that a little bit, right? It's not just that, right? I mean, we do. <laughs> Fair I enough. Mean, I would say, it's not just medium complex um, diagnostics instruments. We do okay. have we do work on class three infusion pumps, and we have worked on you know implantables. We currently okay. work, are working on one, and this these libraries are flexible enough that we could use parts of it, and not all of it. Maybe okay. not all of it is relevant to be used, but some parts of it, or at least get inspiration from like the design pattern how we want to test it a lot of these a lot of everything we do everything we do i would say even in planables is you have to enable you know you need to test your embedded system right whether that has its own touch screen or it's it's just an you know planable thing that is you know embedded in somebody's body you, you need to be able to talk to it you need to be able to send a command receive the sensory data, whatever is doing off it, able to display, make sure your alarms happen at the time that you expect to you make sure you can inject maybe air conditions and make sure, you know, your uh, whatever it is, um, whether it's, there's a host involved or it's your alarms actually gets detected or errors get detected. So you should be able to test those, right? For that, you need a host, you need a application that your engineers could use to trigger things and to be able to monitor things and even if we don't use our like embedded library we often get to use like our non-embedded library like pc-based desktop applications and, and tool chain communication scheme at least to to be able to like do that and if you have off-the-shelf like testing forms and things like that that we could use for an implantable device right nice or something that is lightweight so i would say what you said is true, but I would say also, <laughs> I didn't want to put words in your mouth. But but yeah, your your point is well taken. Yeah. yeah. So I think it you know we also expand that capability across all all sorts of offering that we, we provide to our customers. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not yet ready to let go of that of those short feedback cycles, because I'm wondering, in your experience, how easy is it to get your customers to actually provide good feedback you know because it, you know i i've i've been quite angry with quite a few managers of mine over the years who kind of waltzed into the room said oh yeah it looks nice and waltzed back out and that was me you know pouring three months of blood sweat and tears into this product so we all know that if you want to to work in an agile way you must have fast actionable insightful feedback from customers do you find that customers are ready to give that you know, on their own, or do you need to educate them and, and really help them uh, give you what you need? I hope none of them are listening um, to this podcast, but no. I'm... This is all secret. <laughs> we, we won't tell anyone, will we, Jeff? Yeah, seriously, this is completely under the wraps. Yeah. Yep. We don't really have yeah. an audience. No. <laughs> I would say there is a combination of the two. Like, I would say there are, have you seen anywhere on, on that spectrum that you just defined? So we have. Customers that are very good at this, they understand the agile development, they can provide those fast feedback. And we've had customers that is really, really hard, hard to pin down exactly what they need, right? And anywhere in between. I would say the way we do things, the, the two-week sprints, and it kind of forces them to make a decision on, on things. But going back to what I explained earlier, that planning phase, having to identify the, the, the project milestones and goals that is the important thing right so investing the time 
even if it's two weeks, even if it's, you know, one week, the first sprint, investing the time to define exactly what you want to want the, want the product to do. That's, that's super critical. And then you could kind of adjust as you move on through these um, feedback cycle. But I would say this, the process, the agile process itself, that's again, that's we, that's our DNA. That's in our DNA. We define that early on in the project. We educate the customers before we even sign the first contract, right? So they, they are kind of on board. And then, yes, so there is some education involved. And as we go through these process, I think things get better. Like the first couple of sprints usually rough, but things get better. And you mentioned the three-month cycle of, you know, working on something, putting your blood and sweat into some. And it, it is true, but we minimize that by doing shorter cycles, right? So like every two weeks, they see it, they're like, you know, I don't like the color of that LED. Can you change it? Or I don't like how this button looks. Can we? And we could do that earlier on instead of like surprising at the end. We're like, voila, here's the whole um, user interface. Um, take it or leave it. That, that's not usually how we do things, right? So I think them being involved early on, it's it's super uh, useful in every cycle, uh, having that to show what, what we've accomplished. Getting their feedback immediately. I think the most challenging part there is to actually make sure there is a um, long-term alignment on things rather than, oh, we don't like the color of this. Let's spend another two weeks just adjusting this color and forgetting what the uh, what we need to deliver in three months. So I think that those are the challenges that we've, we face, but we usually do good making, making <laughs> both parties happy. Here, here's a question for you. So this was this was some pushback I got recently about specifically doing things in in sprints. And Luca and I have have hit this a lot in this podcast that you know, newsflash to all you audience members out there: you don't have to work in sprints. <laughs> That's not like that is one way. It is not the only way. But I I do like I do like that that regular touch point, especially if you're if you're a contract development firm like Veronex is, and your customer is not in the same building, but having that frequent touch point of everyone get in the same room and look at the device and it's very concrete. I like sprints for that. The the pushback I got from some people was essentially it's it's locally inefficient use of your team. Say, you know, you have people developing things for that sprint, and then maybe you need some time for testing and documentation. And so essentially your team isn't utilized to its full capacity. I have thoughts about that, but I'm curious to hear if that even if, is that even a problem for you? Is it even something you notice or or is it? You do notice it, but it's just the cost of doing business. Kind of what? It, what are your thoughts there? A few thoughts there. <laughs> I would say, you know, my question is, what is the alternative? It's going back to waterfall, and we all know, you know, the the goods and bads of that, right? So I think, you know, that that's the alternative, I guess. Yeah. Well, real, real quick, I, I I do want to take issue with that. So I think when I said in the beginning, sprints is one way to do it. You don't have to do it that way. The alternative, an alternative that's even more agile, is kind of a flow-based yeah. where you're not even doing these. It's it's like constant. Like, what's the next highest priority thing? Do that. And and maybe different members of the team can be pulling things off the top of the backlog, as it were, and implementing them. And essentially, you're, you never have sprints. It's just a continuous flowing machine, and you're constantly reevaluating. So I, I – I, but I, I interrupted. I, I want to get no, your thoughts yeah. on – 
Yeah, maybe I misunderstood the question. So yes, the, the doing sprint-based agile versus non-sprint-based agile, we do that. We do both. So I mean, our projects that we feel like this is more in tune with, uh, you know, doing, you know, Kanban type style or, you know, it's more flow-based, right? It's not sprint-based. We do that. So like, for example, we have, uh, I mentioned this, these core libraries that we developed. Those are, we don't, we don't have sprints for those. Those are kind of, um, we have a backlog of things that we want to improve. That we have backlog of bugs that we find. We have maintenance items. And those are handled that way. Yeah, you know, we have, mm-hmm. a, maybe sometimes we have a dedicated core team for that. Maybe we don't. And we just need to kind of flex um, based on that, right? So I think that's, that's, you know, we do it. We do have those. But when it's in, in a it's kind of cross-functional team involved, I think, it makes more sense to do sprint based because everybody's okay. on the same cadence. Everybody's the management becomes easier when you're on a or sprint based or you have, you know, short term kind of milestones and deliverables. It makes more sense that way. Do you find that in, in that fixed cadence, do you find you have people spinning their wheels or kind of not having something to do? Luckily, I mean, on a, for a project, maybe, but we often have multiple projects. So there's usually like, you know, the, they're waiting on a part to arrive for two weeks. They're not going to just sit on their hands doing nothing for that project. You know, they have something else that they usually work um, on, on a different project. Or we, you know, because we've developed these core capabilities, there's often, a, you you know, you're waiting on a PCB to arrive. Um, it's being fabricated. You're going to have to wait, you know, a couple of weeks in those couple of weeks, there's a different project or there is this, these core things that, you know, been on the backlog and they'll go pick that up and, you know, deliver that in two weeks. So I would say, yeah. Nice. So uh, one thing I would want to add is maybe that you, you touched on this a little, a little bit is like when is cross-functional, when is the cross-functional team? I think what's important is to have everybody involved in those friends even if they don't have anything to do, that specific sprint, have them involved in the planning. So they know what's coming up, having them involved in demo, so they see what the client feedback is. And there is there might be something relevant to something they did two sprints back that they need to maybe adjust. Or So having the whole team involved is important. I think we're, this this podcast is about quality, you know, maintaining quality while being agile. And, and one thing that I think we have done that has has worked really well is actually involving our software quality folks, our QA folks in our, in our sprints. They might not have anything to do for that specific sprint, but having them involved so they, they understand the software design, the software components of things, and they will, they will write better verification test protocols at the end. If there is a requirement, and the developers will write better code, I suppose, by yeah, receiving input exactly. from the testers. Exactly. Have, have you heard of the of the three amigos? I heard it, I think, in your podcast. You know, but oh, I don't okay. remember exactly what. The first time you said it, I had I had not heard that term. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I just I was just reminded of that. So the idea is that as you're developing specifications, as you're developing user stories, you the three amigos do it. So the product owner or other kind of specification engineer, the developer and the tester. So those are the three amigos. And I like to actually invite a couple more amigos. But yeah, so I I think what you described makes makes total sense also through the lens of Agile. 
I wanted to ask about something else that, that I was wondering about, which is if you are doing safety critical work and you have to have external reviews done by, by reviewers, by FDA maybe, do you involve external reviewers? Do we involve the FDA only at the, like, at the end of development after you've done a million sprints? Or will you invite them almost like customers on a regular basis and have them support and follow the development of the device? You know, if if it's something that I actually need to look at, obviously. FDA submission usually happens at the end of the project, right? And you've you put in your blood and sweat and tears into something for months or years or um, decades, and then you you actually do a submission at the end. But that's that's one checkpoint at the end. I don't. I think there you could probably speed that up and have like pre-submissions and have meetings with FDA to discuss things. I'm not a kind of regulatory expert when it comes to that. I think there are pathways to get feedback from FDA, but I would say oftentimes either our clients or we within our internal organization we do have regulatory experts who have done this, who have gone through multiple submissions. Having them involved is key. Having getting their feedback is key. So getting the, your you know internal regulatory team aligned on a periodic basis is very very important. So your quality and management system is designed and developed to meet regulatory requirements. So I would look at quality system, uh, quality personnel, um, quality engineers as as liaisons of these regulatory team, and and that was kind of like my point about getting them involved throughout every sprint, even if they're not, you know, pr producing documentation or producing what needed for that portion of the project, have them involved, have them be in the planning so they see what's coming, they see how things are being designed. They might give you a feedback on things that, you know, you're like, this is never going to fly with, you know, with, with the regulatory team or with the, with the FDA, right? So getting that feedback early on is important but yeah you you would want to look at them more as so quality will be mostly the internal engineering team regulatory will probably be more on the client client side like you would want to uh, look at them as a as clients of you're demoing your things to the regulatory team if that makes sense yeah that's well said and and just from from my perspective i i completely agree with ross like I don't know how it works in other safety critical industries and maybe in other countries with different regulatory bodies for the FDA kind of inviting them in during the development is not a thing like they're too busy. So the best you can do is get one or two pre sub meetings before you go to the submission. And that's the, that's the place to get it's much higher level feedback. It's, Hey, this is our regulatory plan. If it's a, what's called a five ten K for those are people, people who aren't sure, which is a lot of the submissions here in the U.S., that requires what's called a predicate device. Basically, you're saying our device is really similar to this thing that's already on the market, that's already been approved. Like we're, we're not that different. We're basically doing the same thing as them. And essentially, you could, during a pre-sub, make sure your predicate choice is okay. Anyway, that, I don't want to get too in the weeds, but the, the feedback from FDA, the, a pre-sub approving your regulatory strategy and maybe your clinical trial strategy is about the best you can do in terms of getting feedback before that heart stopping moment at the end where you actually submit and wait the 90 days for them to reply. Um, it's not, it's not fun. It's not agile. So in other words, you, you're agile until it hits the FDA and then you're back to what you're, yeah. 
So the, again, and and all the regulatory consultants I know rec- highly recommend scheduling a pre-sub to a, get as much feedback at that high level as you can. So cool. I so I, I Ross, I know you have a hard stop, so I think we should we should probably wrap it up here. Where can people go to find out more about Veronex and what you do? So veronex.com, that's our <laughs> website. Nice. Um, How do you yes. spell that? V-E-R-A-N-E-X. So Vera means vision, I guess, or and then next means next. So the next, the next thing, right? Right. the next vision. Yeah. So, and of course, this will be in the show um, notes. Yeah. And uh, personally, I'm on LinkedIn, and uh, yeah, I'm, um, Fusion Dash Biotech is our other website, our legacy website. So, but yeah, I think veronext.com is where they can find everything about us. All right. Any anything else, Luca? Before uh, we wrap up. No. All right. Ross, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was fantastic. Awesome. Thanks for uh, having me on. And it's it's very nice to meet you, Luca. Likewise. Good chatting with you, Jeff, as, as always. As always. All right. This has been the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca Gianni. And we will see you all next time. Thanks. See you. Bye.